Now this is the word of the Lord. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procreus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Perimenes, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Amen. At uh, almost every chapter, the book of Acts tells us that in the life of the early church, the word of God was increasing and the number of disciples were multiplying. Now, what is ironic is that the context in which this spontaneous growth was occurring was the context of persecution and conflict. See, from the beginning of the life of the church, we find Satan, he is applying pressure from the outside through persecution, and he's also stirring up disruption from the inside through division. So outside, persecution, inside, division. Yet, Despite all of Satan's efforts, Acts tells us the word of God continued to increase and the disciples were added day by day. You see, Acts teaches us that from its very beginnings, that nothing, nothing can stop God's mission for his church. Not Satan not sin, not persecution, not division, not conflict. Nothing can stop God's mission for His church. And you know, I think that we can, there is no way that we can be reminded of this in a way that's enough and sufficient. We need to be reminded over and over and over again That no power of hell, no scheme of man can thwart God's plan for his church. Not my incompetence, not your incompetence, not my sins, not your sins, not my foolishness or your foolishness. There is nothing that can stop God's mission for his church. Isn't that such, isn't that such, so, so much relief and comfort? as we come to serve him and his church. Now, today's passage details another story 
of internal strife and sin. And this time, the issue is over bread. It's over bread. In Acts 6, the church was engaged in the ministry of mercy, specifically providing for the widows of the church. Now, it seems that there were two groups in the church. There were the Hebrews and the Hellenists. Now, the Hebrews were Jews who lived in Jerusalem, stayed in Jerusalem. They spoke Aramaic, and they were culturally Jewish. The Hellenists, on the other hand, they were also Jewish, but they were culturally and linguistically Greek. Now, you have these two sides, these two groups, and the Hellenists, they begin to complain that their widows were being overlooked. Their claim was that the Hebrew widows were receiving preferential treatment. Now, there probably was some truth to this complaint. The Greek widows, they were the minority group. And we know quite well that in group dynamics, unless there are intentional rules and deliberate guidelines to promote equality, the scales will always be tipped in favor of the majority group. So it's probably true that the Greek widows were not receiving equal and fair distribution. So in many ways, the issue in Acts 6 was a social issue. It was a social justice issue. A minority group was not receiving equal treatment. However, however, Luke wants us to know that while this certainly could have been a real social justice issue, this issue evolved deeper and it became a sin issue. It evolved where it became this issue where one group started to sin against the other group. Look with me in chapter 6, verse 1. This is what it says. Luke records, a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews. See, the Hellenists, they are not complaining about the church's distribution policy. The Hellenists are not proposing that the mercy ministry be reorganized. No. Instead, what are they doing? They are complaining. And what are they complaining about? Who are they complaining about? They're complaining against the Hebrews. It's directed towards other people. You see, their anger and rage and bitterness is now being pointed to other people. Their complaint is directly towards other people. They are grumbling in their hearts against who? Against fellow believers. It's not, I am being overlooked, but look at these people. That's the issue. Friends, isn't this often the nature of complaining? Isn't our complaining against other people? Right? It's not, you know, I am so unhappy. That's not why we complain. Why do we complain? 
We complain when we see others happier than we are. When others seem more successful, when others appear to be more accomplished, when they are more attractive or more accepted in comparison to me, that's when we start to complain. That's when we start to crumble. Especially when we think, I deserve it more. I deserve it more. Look at these people. I deserve it more. I mean, sociologists have, they, they've concluded that one of the reasons why society is so discontent is because social media. Because when we are on social media, we think, why do they get to live that life and not me? Why do they have that, not me? See, complaining often takes place in the context of comparison. And because of that, our complaints are often directed against other people. Remember the days of sitting in a busy restaurant, the days before COVID, when we sat in a busy restaurant and we had to patiently wait for your food to come out. Maybe you even had to wait to be seated at a table. Remember those days when it was extremely busy and you're just waiting and waiting and waiting for your food to come out and you're extremely hungry? What happens when you see someone who came later than you get their food before you? You start to grumble. And for no reason, you start to despise those people. You know, Jesus tells a story in Matthew 20. It's a story about an owner of a vineyard, a vineyard who goes out in three-hour intervals, three hours each time, and he goes out and he hires workers. And every single time he goes out to hire workers, they all agree to work for one denarii before they begin their work. So at the beginning of the day, you know, the, the master goes out and he hires workers and they agree, if you work this whole day for me, I will give you one denarii. And they all agree. Then he goes out three hours later, one denarii. They all agree. And he keeps doing that until there's one hour left in the day and he hires workers. At the end of the day, the master has them, they have, he has them all line up and he begins to pay the workers one by one what they agreed to, one denarii. And what happens? When the workers who worked 12 hours the entire day, what happens when they receive one denarii? They complain. They grumble, Jesus says. Why do they grumble? Even though they agreed to work for one denarii at the beginning of the day, why do they grumble? They grumble when they see others who had worked less receive the same, even though that's what they agreed to. Grumbling is often in the context of comparison when you feel as though you are getting the short end of the stick and you deserve more. Why is it that you complain? Why do you grumble in your heart? It's because you're comparing what you have to what others have. You're comparing what you have received to what others have received. And at the end of the day, you think you are more deserving than they are. See, I'm convinced that this is what Luke considers to be the main issue in Acts 6. The main issue in Acts 6 is not about unfair distribution of bread because that can be changed quickly. That's just, it just requires a policy change. But what Luke wants us to see is he wants to see, 
He wants us to see the deeper issue in life, the deeper issue in the life of the church, and that is grumbling. That's why Luke actually uses a very familiar word in the Greek when he talks about complaining. Gagusmos is the word, and it's a very familiar word to the readers of Scripture because it's the same word that's used in Exodus to describe the actions of the Israelites in the wilderness. Remember the Israelites? What were they doing for all the 40 years they were in the wilderness? What happened after they had crossed the Red Sea, experienced tremendous grace? Three days later, after experiencing grace, they go from grace to grumbling. They grumbled against God. They grumbled to Moses. They spent 40 years in the wilderness just complaining and complaining and grumbling and murmuring in their hearts. They compared their lives with their former lives, and they complained to God, why did you bring us here? See, Luke wants us to see in Acts 6 that what the early church is undergoing is another wilderness experience. The church, the church has has forgotten grace. The members of the church had forgotten grace, and now they have become quick to grumble. They've become quick to complain. Friends, I know that um, as believers, when we are called to repentance, uh, you know, whenever we are called to, you know, look inward and reflect upon our sins and really repent before the Lord, I know that complaining is something that we don't give much attention to. Kevin DeYoung once said this. Um, he said, quote, grumbling is one of those sins we universally dislike when we see it in others, yet we invariably approve of it when we find it in ourselves. See, we don't like people who grumble all the time. No one likes a complainer. But we always approve of it when we do it. We rarely take account of our grumbling part. We hate people who complain all the time, but we rarely take account of our grumbling heart. But Luke here in today's passage is warning us as he tells the story of the early church about the severity of this sin, the seriousness of this issue in the church and the people of God. You know, ultimately, if you go back to Exodus, the reason why the Israelites, even after having experienced amazing grace, why did they fail to enter the promised land? It's because they kept complaining over and over and over again. I know complaining doesn't sound like a very serious sin, but the Bible actually takes it quite seriously. According to Scripture, complaining is a serious, serious sin. If you look at Jude, Jude is one of those uh, books of the Bible. It's, it's just one chapter, extremely short. And in Jude 14, um, the, the author quotes a prophecy, an, an Old Testament prophecy, and he says this, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. This prophecy is about judgment. And he comes to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness 
that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Again, here's the judgment is coming. God is going to bring judgment upon the ungodly. The deeds, the things they've said, all the ungodly sinners, judgment is coming down. And do you know the first type of people that Jude writes about? Who are these people? Next slide. They are grumblers. They are malcontents following their own sinful desires. Do you know why the Bible considers complaining and grumbling such a serious issue? Because when we grumble, we see ourselves as the center of the universe and we expect everyone and everything around us to do what? To exist for me. At the heart of grumbling is this issue where you see yourself as the center of everything. And people in your lives, everything in your life exists to serve you. And when they don't, then you complain. Even God, why does he exist? To serve you. When there's traffic on the highway, you complain. Why? Because the Pennsylvania Turnpike only exists so that you can get to where you need to go expediently. When the school board makes a decision that doesn't serve your best interest, you complain. Why? Because of course the school board exists to serve only you. When the church has a schedule that's inconvenient for you, you complain. Of course, because why? We exist to fit your world, your children, your spouse, your parents, your friends, your co-workers, your boss, your company, your church, they all exist for you. And when you are not served, when the gravitational pull is not towards you, but away from you, then you start to complain. Do you see how detrimental this sin is? Do you see how dangerous this sin is? can be for your soul. C.S. Lewis remarking on this, on the severity of this sin, he says this, quote, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you can stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then, There will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing, which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. Friends, you can continue to look for reasons to complain. You can continue to look for reasons to be upset or... Or you can acknowledge the reasons you currently have right now to be thankful. Again, you can go searching for things to complain about, or you can see what you have in your life, what you have, all the things to be thankful for. The church was having a wilderness experience. The people were grumbling. They had quickly forgotten grace. So what does the church do? They ordain deacons. Notice the church doesn't create a committee and say, you know what? We need new bylaws for mercy ministry. 
oh, the church, Presbyterian church, loves bylaws. But they didn't say, you know what, we're going to create bylaws. They didn't say, you know what, we need to restructure the daily distribution. No. Why? Because that's not going to restructure the issues of the heart, the complaining sinful heart. Instead, what do they do? They call deacons. They ordain men to go and minister directly to the people. I mean, look at the qualifications of a deacon. Men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. You see, the issue in the church was that these people were complaining, and what they wanted to do was they wanted to send people who can minister to them directly. They were not looking for men who were skilled in operations and distributions. They weren't looking for people who majored in logistics or understood supply chain management. No, there were people who were full of the spirit and wisdom. In other words, the church decided what we need is we need servants who are as close as possible to Jesus. We need servants who resemble Jesus, servants who emulate Jesus, servants who give off the fragrance and the essence of Jesus. Why? Because what these people really needed, what the church really needed, was not equality. But what they really needed was the gospel. You see, the people needed to be reminded and taught that they were already rich in Jesus. They needed to be reminded that they had every need fulfilled in Jesus. They needed to be reminded that God was their father and he was going to provide for them no matter what. And that came through the ministry of the deacons. Not equitable practices. The church needed men who embodied Jesus. See, if you think about it, the fair distribution of bread, if they created some kind of mechanism where bread was fairly distributed, sure, that will bring satisfaction. Maybe the Hellenistic, Hellenist uh, widows would be satisfied. But that's momentary. We all know that, right? We all know that. The members of the church will find something else to complain about. Oh, the music's too loud. Oh, the music's too soft. Oh, it's too warm in the chapel. Oh, it's too cold in the chapel. Oh, the preacher, he's too emotional. Oh, he's too stoic. The church is so unwelcoming. Oh, the church is shallow and fake. Oh, the church doesn't care about me. Oh, the church is so burdensome. People will always find things to complain about, right? What is it that the church needs? What is it that the members need? What's really needed is for each and every member to know and feel through the ministry of the church that in Jesus, they have everything. So even if sometimes we get the short end of the stick, even if maybe I'm being treated unfairly, that's okay. Because Jesus is enough for me. Friends, the office of the diaconate was not created so that these men could simply wait on tables and distribute food. No, it was created so that the members of the church would experience through service the love and ministry of Jesus himself. 
You know, I know Acts 7 or Acts 6, this is where the office of deacon begins. But do you know who the first deacon in the church was? It wasn't these seven men. It was Jesus. Jesus himself said, Mark 10, I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. When he says, I have not come to be served, he actually uses the word for deacon. He says, basically, I have not come to be deaconed, but I have come to deacon. I have come to serve. Jesus was the first deacon of the church who came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for all of us. And what is it that the church is doing in chapter 6? It's trying to continue the ministry of Jesus, where every member could once again feel and experience and know through the ministry, through the mercy ministry, that they in Jesus already have everything. How does the passage end? Does it end by saying, and there was equality for everyone? No. The passage ends by saying, the word of God increased and disciples were added. Many people came to faith. In other words, it wasn't the promotion of equality, but it was the promotion of the gospel. That's the work of the deacon. It promoted the gospel ministry and many people came to faith. These widows who were complaining and grumbling they were once again reminded that in Jesus, they already have everything. Church, I want to remind you this morning that the only thing that is going to give you true contentment, true contentment leading to genuine thanksgiving is Jesus himself. Until you truly believe that I have everything in Jesus you and I will find something to complain about. But it's only in the gospel, it's only in Jesus where we are free from the bondage of comparison, where we are free from the disease of complaining, free from the addiction of self-centeredness. So church, will Jesus be your everything this morning? Will you be content in him? Sure, you may feel as though you're being treated in an unfair way. And maybe that's true. At work, at home, at church, at school, wherever. There may be this feeling that you are getting the short end of the stick. You are not getting the recognition you deserve, the wage you demand. Sure. But you know what? In life, there will always be things to complain about. We will always find it. And this morning, the call is not the promotion of equality all around. But once again, the call this morning is, will Jesus, will you allow him to be your everything? Will you find your true contentment in him this morning? Luke wants us to see in Acts chapter 6, he wants, to, he wants us to see the absurdity and the pettiness brought about by the sins of the people. There's living bread leading to eternal life. That is being offered by the preaching of the gospel 
But the members are upset. They're fighting over bread that spoils and rots. And this morning, what will be the focus of your attention? What you don't have? What others have? Or will your focus be the abundant grace and the new life that's given to you in Christ? And as you receive this, will you say, this is enough for me. I have everything in Jesus. Would you join me in prayer at this time?